a lot of people, when they're, when they're doing worship music, we're going to talk this morning about the will of God. You know, we're talking about leadership this weekend, but, and you can get to Matthew 6. We're picking up where we left off last night. But for me, I feel like a lot of people, uh, they, they play around with the will of God almost like uh, a little bit too emotional and gushy and kind of, I don't know how the word I'm trying to come up with to describe it, but almost overly emotional where for me, when I think of the Lord and I think of uh, passages of Scripture uh, like Isaiah 6 and Ezekiel 10 and uh, Revelation, uh, well, throughout the book of Revelation, particularly, uh, I believe, Revelation 4, 7, 4 and 7. Um, but you, you see these pictures of Jesus and he's on a throne and he's being worshipped. And I always, I always think of, this is where I think the spiritual parallels that, that Tolkien intended when he wrote the Lord of the Rings trilogy, if you've read the books, or if not, if you've seen the movies, a lot of uh, gospel parallel kind of goes through those stories or through that story. But the idea of a powerful king who is worthy of the praise of strong people. You know, so Jesus is worthy of the praise of little children who would sit on his lap. He's worthy of the praise of the sick and dying, uh, those he healed. But to think that even in the ministry of Jesus, you saw a Roman centurion who was a general of a thousand men who would have been battle-hardened. You see these guys fall before the Lord and worship him. So I love songs like that last song because we're, 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 we're proclaiming just the power of God and exalting him for who he is. And then I love that instrument because it's so manly sounding. Just good. It's awesome. So let's, uh, let's go to Matthew 6. And I want to just, for you guys uh, from Fairburn that were here last night, if we could just give a quick overview to the Turner's Chapel folks so that they can be brought up to speed. We're looking at, we're talking this weekend about leadership. And so we started off by really in these first three sessions, last night, this morning, and tonight's session, uh, the three main sessions, looking at the, the fact that the foundation of godly biblical leadership is going to be uh, effective prayer life, okay? So we're talking about prayer, and this is in the context of Jesus speaking to uh, the, the, the early followers who eventually would be, it would be these people that he would build the church on. So in effect, you could kind of say he's talking to a group of leaders. These are the first believers. These are the, so, so in missions, when you go into a new area, um, that's never heard the gospel, you bring the gospel to that area. If people come to faith in Jesus, then what you do is you train up the first disciples who those people become leaders. Okay. So discipleship always leads to leadership. If you're, if you're into catchphrases, you like to, you know, write down little phrases and discipleship should always lead to leadership. Every disciple should become a leader in some capacity. Now, some are going to become leaders on a larger scale, pastors, student pastors, small group leaders, things like that. But if you're a believer, you're a follower of Christ, then, then you're going to become a leader. Discipleship always leads to leadership. So Jesus is speaking to these people, and he says, uh, he basically gives them uh, four things in terms of the pattern of prayer that we talked about last night. And uh, this is in Matthew 6. The first one was in verse 6. He says, go into your room and shut the door. So he talks about a private prayer life. So good leaders are not just going to pray on Sunday morning from the from the pulpit or in the Sunday school room. There, that's going to be the overflow of a private prayer life. Um, the second thing we looked at is in the next phrase of verse 6, pray to your Father who's in heaven and he hears you. Uh, and and uh, or is in secret and, and the Father who sees in secret will reward you. He hears us. He's in heaven. 
and he meets us in the secret place, and so we pray to the Father. And we talked a little bit, uh, if you Turner's Chapel guys, we talked a little bit about how people, a lot of times people have the tendency to say, hey Jesus, what's up Jesus, I'm talking to you Jesus. And that's okay, but we're praying to the Father through the Son. So we need to make sure that we're praying to the Father. You see this exampled in Christ's prayer life. Jesus is always praying to the Father. So again, it's okay to talk to Jesus, that's great, um, but remembering that we're praying to the Father, that's, that's important. Um, the third thing was in verse 7, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. So we talked about not just saying like a lot of what some people call Christianese, you know, just kind of spiritual church words. You're just saying stuff, saying stuff, but you don't really think about what you're saying. And so you maybe don't even mean really from your heart, you don't even mean what you're saying. So being real intentional with our words and remembering what I heard a wise man say one time, uh, say less, better. Say less, better. It's better, if, if I could say a thousand words of, of just kind of empty phrases, that would not be as good as if I could say 20 words from the heart of, a, of an effective prayer life. An example would be um, the prayer of Samson just before he pushes the pillars and caves in the temple uh, to Dagon, the Philistine god. Remember that? He just says this little short prayer. It's a prayer of repentance and restoration. Okay, and then boom, and God, God hears that. So short Few words can oftentimes be better. The, the, the key being we want our words to be meaningful and, and to come from the heart. So, And then the fourth thing um, that we looked at last night is in verse 9. He says, pray then like this, our Father. And so now verse 9, we're, we're in the process of breaking down the fourth aspect of prayer, which is this model prayer that he gives us. Um, I thought about at the end of the session today, saying the Lord's Prayer together, and then I thought, nah, I don't want to make it awkward for everybody, but that would be kind of cool. Maybe in your small groups, uh, what I thought we'd do is as an assignment, at the end of share groups today, uh, close that in, in saying the Lord's Prayer, now that you'll have kind of this, this may, hopefully a deeper understanding of what that is. It's more than just gather around and say the Lord's Prayer together because we're all Christians. It's not just some chant. It's, it's a model of how we are to pray. And so we take this model and we learn how to pray. So the fourth thing, uh, so the first one, uh, go into your room, pray in private. Number two, uh, the Father who hears you, uh, uh, pray to the Father who hears you in secret. So we're talking to the Father. Number three, don't heap up empty phrases. And number four, and he gives us this model, and that's what we're working through right now. So let's just, what we're going to do is we're going to work through the first three phases of this. It's going to be in two phases of three. The first three phases we're going to cover this morning, the next three phases tonight. And here's the way those phases break down. The first three sentences of the Lord's Prayer address God's will, okay? The next three sentences address man's need. They address my need. Okay, so here's what we have to be careful of not do, to not do, but what a lot of people do is they, they invert that. So we pray kind of, God, I need this. God, I want that. God, help me with this thing or, or be with this person. And then at the very end, we may, we may say, and all these things in your will or something like that. So what, he, what Jesus shows us is if we get this thing right, we're going to pray through these different aspects of God's will. Those three things, what we're going to look at this morning. Then we're, our hearts are sort of prepared and the posture of our heart and our attitude of worship to then pray for God to meet our needs. And we'll be doing that on his terms. Okay? So, so uh, let's, just, let's just take this sentence by sentence or phrase by phrase. He says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now the word hallowed just means, uh, means holy means holy is your name. God's name is different from every other name. If you ever meet someone and you say, hey, what's your name? And he says, hey, man, my name's Elohim. 
you're going to, then that's the, one of the Old Testament names for God. That is, in fact, the personal God who is introduced to us in the, like the first couple verses of the Bible. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. Okay? Elohim. Now, you will meet people named Jesus. You'll meet people named Jesus, right? In Latin American cultures, uh, in, in, in the Anglo, uh, in, in Anglo languages, uh, English primarily, <coughs> excuse me, uh, the name Joshua. Did you know that? The name Joshua means Jesus. Okay, so, so if you follow this, this name, etymology is, is, is a word that means the history of a word. Okay, so the history or the etymology of the name Joshua would be uh, the name Joshua is given to one of God's leaders in the Old Testament. It's a name change for him. Okay, his name was Hosea, which meant salvation. Okay, then his name was changed by God to Joshua, which means the Lord, okay, which means Yahweh, which was the name of the Lord in the Old Testament. That's Jesus' name in the Old Testament. So the name of Jesus throughout the Old Testament is Yahweh. So he says, Yahweh is our salvation. That was what the name Joshua meant. Yahweh is our salvation. So it goes, in the Old Testament, you've got Elohim, who is God the Father, and then Yahweh, who is the Lord, that's the Old Testament picture of Jesus, who changes this man's name, Joshua, to Yahweh saves, okay? And then that name carries down through the Old Testament to the time of Christ. And when Jesus comes into the world, that's what they name him, okay? And his name is Jesus Christ. Jesus the Christ is what we refer to him as. And even in that name, what you've got is Jesus, who is fully human. Jesus became fully human, so he's got a human name, okay? But then the Christ which means the anointed one or the Messiah, okay? So you've got, he's fully God. And so what we don't do is we don't name our kids Christ or God or Elohim. Those are names that even, even in most, the vilest, most pagan land like America today, okay, where people are trying to redefine everything, we see it year in, year out, week in, week out in this ministry. People are trying to redefine everything Scripture says and do it under the flagship of Christianity, People are trying to redefine marriage, redefine sexuality, redefine um, the human body, redefine um, the way a government should function, the way a home should function, the way kids should operate. Okay, so trying to re- but, but we know that the authoritative scripture, the authority of the word of God uh, is our God, even in a culture like the one we live in where people don't respect the authority of scripture, people don't tend to name their kids Christ or Elohim or God. You know, oh, this is my, this is my three-year-old, his name's God. You, I've never had that happen. Never had that happen. I've known several Jesuses, and I've known even more Joshuas. We have several on staff even. Okay? But the name of God is holy, which means it's set apart and it's reserved for him. Okay? Now, this is important, and I think it's important when you pray to the Father, our Father who is in heaven. What Jesus is saying is identify this Father, this God. Okay? Don't just say, uh, like, like uh, it could, it could even be that we, what we're doing is we're defining who we're praying to. I don't want to just say God. I don't want to just say, dear God. I want to be, uh, uh, Jesus has given us a model here to be very specific in how we address the Lord. Because what do Muslims call Allah? They call him God, right? They call him God. What do the Mormons refer to in terms of their higher power? God, okay? What do the Jehovah's Witnesses refer to? God, what, so, so many pagan religions will refer to God, and so when we talk about the specific nature and character and name of God, we want to be, when we're praying, we want to make sure we're identifying 
Because in the spiritual realm, okay, it's a leadership conference here. It's not the kind of thing that we typically get into on a weekend with four or 500 kids sitting here. But in the spiritual realm, we know that there are principalities and powers, the Scripture teaches us in, my, in uh, Ephesians chapter 6. Literally, there are demonic and angelic forces at work constantly. So when we pray, and we pray to God in heaven, Yahweh, the Lord Jesus Christ, God our Father, what we're doing is we're identifying the God who sits enthroned over all things. The Bible tells us in Colossians 1 that, that literally Jesus holds all things together. So kings, kingdoms, gods, principalities, powers, uh, demons, angels, everything's under the authority of Jesus. Okay, So when I'm praying, it's important then that I identify who I'm praying to. Okay, Now, again, with each of these points that we're making in these sessions, and we talked about this last night, we don't, want to get, we don't want to go overboard to the point where we say, this is the law, this is the rule. This doesn't mean that in, in conversation there can't be times where you're just talking to the Father. You know, where, where there are times where I'll realize I've just been talking to God, and maybe I'm not really addressing Him by name, but it's more like this, this me and my wife are riding down the road and I'm just talking to her, you know, versus my wife is in the back of the room and there's several hundred people in the room, and I want to get her attention, so I'm going to call her by her name in a different way. There are times where I'm just alone with the Lord, and I'm, my spirit is bearing witness to the Lord. I'm walking with the Lord. I'm, in, I'm in, in fellowship with the Lord, and so I'm just talking to the Lord. Okay, so we need to guard against, again, this goes back to not making empty phrases, so I don't want to just be saying, you know, these, these, uh, these real official phrases to try to like make this fancy prayer life. I want to, but I do want to identify who God is. And I also, guys, need to understand that God's name is holy. People, people you know, don't have the authority to take the name of Jesus Christ as a, as a swear word. They don't have the authority to say, oh my God, as a swear word. I don't even like to say it as an example to you right now. But I hear Christians say, uh, oh my God. You ever hear that? Maybe you've, maybe you've done that. Maybe you've been guilty of doing that. Don't do that. We don't do that. The, the name, literally, one of the things that, that you'll see throughout the Old Testament Scripture is God saying that he's jealous for his name or he's going to do a particular thing for his namesake. Okay, so God's going to wipe out this pagan nation or he's going to raise up this group of people or he's going to bring this prophet and he's going to preach salvation for his name's sake. Okay, so God's jealous and passionate for his name. Jealous for his name. Uh, I think the closest I can come to illustrating this would be um, if a husband and wife, let's say a husband and wife, um, had like uh, nicknames for each other that nobody else knew, okay? And maybe it was just something goofy. Now, I, I don't have this. I'm, y'all, most of y'all know my wife, Little. I nicknamed her Little when we were dating, and that's what everybody calls her. But imagine that uh, a husband and a wife had nicknames for each other, okay? Whatever goofy names they came up came up with, okay? And then an, another man was going to try to seduce that woman, and he began to call her that, that nickname that was exclusive to her husband, okay? That'd be very intrusive. That'd be very, talking about violating the most intimate part of that relationship, the way that they communicate. Does that make sense? You follow what I'm saying? So when we're speaking to God, we need to understand he's given us this name that is a revelation of himself. And you see that throughout the Old Testament scriptures, we see actually a lot of names that God gives to reveal himself to us. But we need to understand God's name is not to just be sworn against or thrown around or invoked because we want to do something. And and what what you have is you have people throughout history doing things in the name of God. 
Okay, I'll give you some examples. Okay, people who have wrongly taken the name of God, done something, and said, "Well, God wants this, or this is God's will, or God blesses this." Okay, example would be the Inquisitions, where people are executed and murdered because they want to read the scriptures for themselves. We're teaching a breakout. Those of you that are coming, I don't know if y'all are coming to summer camp here this summer, but Zach Mabry, worship leader, is going to be teaching a breakout called uh, The Blood-Soaked Scripture, How We Got the English Bible. For us to have the Bible in our language, many, 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 many people died. Many, many people died. So one, guys like, uh, if you've heard these names, John Wycliffe, William Tyndale, Martin Luther, who didn't actually die f- for translation, but who was basically excommunicated from the church. A lot of people were persecuted because they wanted us to be able to read the Bible for ourselves, okay? And so throughout history, you have these people saying, uh, it's not God's will for you to read the Bible. The Bible should only be handled by priests and holy religious people. And so you shouldn't be able to read the Bible. This is what God wants. Well, they're lying. That is not God's will. It's not God's will. God's given us the scripture so that we can read it and know him more. And so they would actually kill and execute people who tried to learn how to read the Bible. Okay? That's a terrible mockery of the name of God, or the will of God. Uh, another thing would be if you've ever read about the Crusades where whole wars were waged and massive groups of people, including the elderly and women and children, were murdered by an army or armies who said they were fighting to defend the name of God. Okay? Well, that's, that's not okay. That's not okay. That, that's not biblical. And so you might run into that where you're talking to somebody about Jesus and they say, you know, they say something like, um, well, what, uh, what uh, if you're a Christian and you think God is so good and Jesus is so loving, what about the Crusades where a lot of innocent people died? And then you would say, that's not my God, and that was not his will, and those people are not doing his will, therefore I think those people are not Christians. They say they're Christians, but they're not. So please don't take something that some pagan murderers did and apply that to my God and my faith. That's the way you would defend that. Make sense? Uh, and what, what are some things in more common era, like nowadays? Uh, one would be people who choose and define how they're going to live their lives personally. And then they say, well, I'm a Christian. God made me this way or God wants me to do this, and so this is okay. Do you hear that a lot from your friends? That God wants me to be happy. And they invoke the name of God into maybe a sinful lifestyle or decision. I want to live this way. I want to act this way. I want to behave this way. I want to do this with my body. I want to be in this type of relationship. And they start to redefine what the scripture teaches, and they do that and say, oh, this is God's will. Well, no, it's not God's will. Just because you have a desire doesn't mean that it's God's will, right? We know that to be true. We know that to be true. We know that just because we desire something doesn't mean God desires it for us. There are often desires of the flesh that the scripture says war against the desires of the mind and the desires of the spirit. So it's important when we walk into prayer with the Lord that we do so saying, your name is who I'm praying to. Jesus' name is who I'm praying in and through. Okay? And we identify God as our Father in heaven, and we recognize that his name is hallowed. Um, There's none like God. He reveals himself by so many ways, and we need to understand that. Number two. So number one, first sentence uh, or phrase, hallowed be your name. Number two, he says, your kingdom come, your kingdom come, and what he's talking, I want to I just take a minute and talk about what it means when we say your kingdom come, because that can be confusing. This, and this goes back to something we mentioned a while ago, where uh, around the 10th, 11th, and 12th centuries, whole wars were fought over the city of Jerusalem because these powerful armies from places like France and Britain thought that 
God's kingdom needed to be taken by force. And to do that, they had to conquer other religions. And specifically, they needed to conquer Jerusalem and Israel and, and bring that back into kind of this Christian domain. And we know from Scripture that that's not the kind of kingdom we're talking about. So I want to talk about kingdom for just a second. King, you'll hear Christians a lot of times talk about kingdom, okay? And specifically in more charismatic circles. You know what I mean when I say charismatic? Charismatic is kind of a more, um, I don't know, more charismatic. Uh, Pentecostal, these are words that, that apply to kind of one faction of several denominations of the Christian faith where people tend to be a little bit more emotional and free and loose with how they approach the Lord. Um, have some, I have some amazing charismatic brothers and sisters in the faith who love the Lord. But typically, in more charismatic circles, people talk about kingdom a lot. And so they'll say, kingdom, kingdom, kingdom. It's all about kingdom. And it's important that we understand what kingdom is. And so when Jesus talks about kingdom, for instance, in Mark chapter 1, the first sermon Jesus preaches, he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is how Jesus starts his ministry. So we need to know what he's talking about. First off, he's not talking about an earthly kingdom in the way that we think of earthly kingdoms. An earthly kingdom would be something like uh, the Egyptian dynasties and kingdoms that lasted for several thousand years. Okay, Those kingdoms rose, they were world powers, and they basically became uh, non-entities after Israel was removed in the Exodus. God came in and basically wiped out their infrastructure after uh, several centuries of world power, okay? And they wiped them out, and then you never see them really be a world power again. You see them just before the time of Jesus sort of contend for world power. There's a, 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 there's a kind of a resurgence in the Egyptian kingdom, but they never are able to overthrow the other kingdoms of the world, and eventually Rome overthrows all of them. And so the Egyptian kingdom would be an example. The Roman Empire would be an example. You guys have to study about the Roman Empire in church or in school, rather. You ever have to do that in school? But, I mean, it's, it's crazy to look at the longevity of the influence and leadership of the Roman Empire in the world. I mean, they, they basically ruled the world for five, six hundred years. You think twice as long as America has been a, a nation the Roman Empire ruled in authority and power. And we've been a nation for... for I think we're at a point where we can say 300 years, 200, about 235 years that we've been an official nation, but the, the roots and the established people that are America uh, have been around for, for a little bit longer than that. But as a world power, you really have to start around the turn of the, the last century. I mean, we weren't really a world power until the late 19th century. So we're looking at less than 150 years that we've been a world power. And yet we're the strongest nation in the world today. Whatever, whatever the news says, whatever people say about China or Russia or whatever, listen, guys, we're the strongest nation in the world today because of God's grace. There's, there's no question. Any ec economist, any uh, military strategist, any uh, sociologist is going to have to admit that we're the strongest nation in the world. We may be sixth or seventh out of 200 nations when it comes to gross national product when you get into economics if you have to take like an economics and law course or something like that and you may say well we're not first in this and we're not first in education don't make any uh mistake about this god's blessed this nation but we're not a nation who will be in power forever we're not we're just not going to it's not it doesn't work that way kings and kingdoms we sung about it in that last song will rise and fall okay but there is a god who is enthroned forever Right? There's a God who's enthroned forever. We, we open to the prayer by saying, our Father in heaven, which is the kingdom from which he rules and governs all kingdoms. 
Okay, if I'm going to be, all right, again, we're tying this into leadership. If I'm going to be an effective leader, I need to understand the kingdom of which I'm a citizen, first and foremost. Okay, I'm an American, great. Uh, I've got a couple kids that come from Uganda, which is an East African nation. So they've got this really cool dual citizenship thing that, that, that we're working on. So they're kind of kingdoms, you know, or citizens of two kingdoms. Ultimately, in Christ, neither of those kingdoms really matters in terms of their identity. My identity is that I'm a kingdom of, I mean, I'm a, a citizen of the kingdom of God. And you'll see in the New Testament, oftentimes, this type of wording used where we're referred to as citizens uh, of, of this heavenly kingdom. So what is the kingdom? It's not an earthly kingdom. You got a, you know, like psychopath, like the dude in North Korea. I don't know if you guys have followed that. It's just crazy. That guy's a psychopath, okay? Well, he's going to be dead and gone just like his dad and his granddad are. And, and there's, I, I remember when, when this guy's dad died, I remember reading this thing. You know, they, they make those guys out to be like gods. And uh, again, I think we're a, a small enough and informal enough group that uh, I can tell you, they so try to exalt these guys as gods that they don't let people know that they even use the restroom. They convince their people that these guys never have to defecate or urinate. They teach, they teach that they're so pure that they, they never even go to the restroom. They never have to bathe. They never have to shower. That, that they're just, there's this purity that kind of permeates from these guys. That's crazy. So you've got a whole kingdom of people who somebody flipped the lights off and they're living in the dark. Okay, well, guess what? That kingdom's going to fall. It's going to fall. And every kingdom of the earth will rise and fall. Soviet Union would be a good example for me. I grew up in an era, I grew up during the Cold War. And it was a time where in school we would do these bomb drills. And it wasn't a bomb drill because we thought maybe there would be a terrorist attack. It was a bomb drill because we thought there may be a massive nuclear attack from the Soviet Union, this world power, who at the time was as strong and at times stronger than us. Well, they're gone. They are no more. I mean, there, there's, the, there, there's what's left of that, and it's called Russia, and they're kind of like the bully of Eastern Europe and Central and North Asia, but they're not what they were at one time. Well, because kingdoms rise and fall. So what are we talking about when we say your kingdom come? Well, uh, let me read to you from 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel, and this will be uh, 2 Samuel verse 7. And what you've got is you've got this this prophetic word being given to uh, a king named David. You guys know David, who's the greatest king of Israel. And God's making a covenant with David. Now we call this the Davidic covenant, the Davidic covenant, because it's a covenant God made with David. Uh, verses 11 and 12, God's speaking to David. From, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all of your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares that or to you that the Lord, that, that when you see Lord in all caps, it, it means Yahweh. It's talking about Jesus, okay, in the Old Testament. So um, Yahweh or Jesus, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled, you will lie down with your fathers. So he's saying, David, you're going to die. I'm going to build a kingdom, and then you personally, you're going to die, okay? You're going to, you're going to be dead. Uh, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Okay, so he's saying to David, you're going to die. So aspects of, of even this kingdom will pass away in this life or this age. But I'm going to raise up a kingdom through your lineage. And we know that Jesus came into the world through the lineage of David, and he says, I'm going to establish a kingdom that lasts and reigns forever and ever and ever. 
well, what kind of, what is this kingdom? Well, we know from scripture that it's kind of broken into two phases. One is the here and now, which is history as we know it from the time of creation to now and to the end of time. God is building a kingdom. What does that kingdom look like? How's it being built? Through the gospel, through salvation, through the proclamation of the gospel. When a person hears the message of salvation through the gospel of Jesus Christ and they come to faith, that is the building up of the kingdom, right? Is that, you guys get that? Yeah, so when we, when we go as missionaries or we send missionaries or we, you share the gospel with your friends, family, neighbors, whatever, and, and when someone comes to faith in Jesus, that's the building, that's, we're taking territory, the kingdom is on the, on the march. It's on the church. And Jesus would even say to his disciples, before the end comes, every part of the earth will be reached with the gospel. Okay, so the nations will know. So in, in, we're talking about the building of a kingdom now that will last forever and ever and ever. Now, as kingdoms rise and fall, the church continues to get bigger or smaller? Bigger. Are, are there more Christians now than there were 100 years ago or fewer? There's more. There's more. Jesus said that. Jesus says, don't worry. What, here's what's going to happen. As history continues, my church will march to the point that he says, this church that I'm building, literally the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against it. There will be a day where the enemy of the church will literally, there's this symbol or this picture of them locking themselves behind the gates of hell and hiding from the oncoming power and effect of the kingdom of God, which is the church. Okay, so the church is going to continue to grow. But that's why it's so important that in America, in the church, we understand Jesus is building a kingdom that's bigger than our local church body, that's bigger than our, our, our influence. It's, it's massive, and we're a part of that. So you can go to Iran, and in Iran, where it's illegal to be a Christian, guess what there are? Christians, a bunch of them. And a lot of them are in prison, and they can't stop it. They can't keep them from... They can't keep the gospel from spreading. They've tried. You go to a place like China, where in, in the early 1980s, it was estimated that there were about a million Christians. And now they don't even try to guess. They say somewhere, but literally, this is what they say, somewhere between 60 million and 300 million. It's like, well, that's a really broad number. They're like, yeah, we can't keep up with it. It's just like exploding. We can't stop it. I mean, it's like the, and what you find is that where the, where the gospel of Jesus is persecuted, it flourishes the most. It flourishes the most because God's building a kingdom. And he's going to build that kingdom by overcoming darkness. And where the world is darkest, when the gospel comes in and penetrates that darkness and, and the light of the gospel is shed, then people are going to come to faith in Jesus. I read this book called The Insanity of God, which I really recommend. I know it's kind of like a preacher's job to recommend a book. Uh, so I'm not trying to sound nerdy, but I am. It's one of those books that I don't read a ton of books. It's one of those books that really shook me up and has, has kind of changed the way I see everything. And it's about the growth of the persecuted church in the world. It's written by a guy who is a, an instructor with the International Mission Board. Um, and he's, uh, he's, he's spent 20 years traveling in and out of persecuted territories, undercover, in secret, uh, interviewing pastors, house church pastors, and, and guys that have been imprisoned. And he said in China, they don't consider you qualified to be a pastor until you've spent at least three years in prison for your faith. Until you spent, they consider prison, a three-year prison sentence is kind of the standard. So like if, I, if, if, if we were in China, they walked through, they saw me teaching you the Bible, they arrest me, automatic three years. That's kind of like the standard prison sentence for proselytizing or church uh, and Christianizing activities. 
So until you've done that sentence, they're like, ah, you know, he says he's a Christian, but we don't know. Because he hasn't been to prison and been persecuted for it. And once you've been there, they say, okay, you've been to seminary. So, you know, like in America, we're like, well, we need pastors and leaders who are qualified. You know, they're, they're educated. They're trained in the Bible. They need to be able to handle it. You know, ch church leadership. So we, we kind of talk about seminary as an important thing. In China, they say, well, you got to go to prison. Once you've been in prison for three years for the faith, which is interesting that that's about the amount of time it takes to do seminary. Fascinating, isn't it? So that's kind of like their seminary. Okay, so what's happening is in places like that, the kingdom of God is just exploding with growth. So when Jesus says, let's pray that your kingdom come, what he's talking about is the, the effects of the gospel, that which is going to be eternal. So young people, don't get caught up in the here and the now and how do I feel? What do I want to do? What, what is the next year going to look like? What are the next five years going to look like? Ask questions like, what are the next... 50 years going to look like in light of the next 500 years? What impact is my life going to make? You want to be an effective leader? Ask big questions. What decisions I make will influence and impact people that will have an effect maybe even for generations to come. Maybe even grandkids and grandkids after those grandkids will, will be effective because, affected because of decisions that I made. So when he says your kingdom come, that's what he's talking about. And, and, and so that's the first aspect of the kingdom, that there's this earthly kingdom where the gospel is spreading. But then there's also this heavenly kingdom that we know there's coming a day when Jesus will rule and reign over all of heaven, where all that is, has stood in opposition to the gospel will be thrown into the lake of fire and cast away, and we will reign with Christ where he will be enthroned. There will be no sin, no sickness, no tribulation, no crying. No, think of the saddest day or the saddest moment of your life. That's not going to exist in this kingdom. So there is an eternal kingdom that he's building through this earthly kingdom where Jesus will reign. King Jesus will reign forever and ever and ever. So the other thing then, as we pray this, what we're doing is we're saying, God, what is your will today for the building of the kingdom so that one day everything will be put in eternal perspective? So we're constantly looking forward saying, whatever I'm going through today is only going to last for a season. Eternity lasts forever. And so we're keeping an eternal perspective. This is great when it comes to everything from dealing with temptation and lust and, and sinful desire to being obedient to, to, to your parents. That understanding that, man, what, this matters 100 years from now. This matters for eternity. And then the last sentence um, in terms of the, the will of God as he's addressing God's will, as he says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So first pray for God's will. All or every problem in the world today, every problem in the world today, and in our lives personally, every problem in the world today and in our lives personally exist because of the demands of sinful people to press their own will rather than the will of God. Every problem. Divorce. Child neglect, child abuse, war, sexual sin, the, the rampant porno, uh, pornographic industry in America, drug abuse, the drug trade, drug trafficking, the cartel in Mexico, a dictator in, uh, in a place like North Korea, Islamic terrorists in France on the rampage. I don't know if y'all heard yesterday, but they killed those guys. You were maybe traveling here. What, what creates all this instant, why doesn't, you know, you, you hear the old funny saying, why can't we all just get along? Well, because humans want to exert their will. 
And when the human will is exerted, it's a matter of time until it's destructive. The problem, with, uh, you know, the evil and the problem in the world today at every turn, any problem in the world today and in our lives personally exists because of a desire for man's will to be done rather than God's. But Psalms, Psalm 1830, Psalm 1830 tells us only God's will is perfect. Sometimes we don't see this at first, and sometimes it takes some time for us to see that God's will is perfect. And I'll be honest with you guys, sometimes God may do something in his perfect will, and the rest of your life you never really see how that was God's perfect will. For instance, if you go through an ugly divorce, your parents split up, and, 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 and the effects of that are so destructive, for, sometimes for generations to come. The effects of that can be destructive for generations. I'm, I'm the product of a divorced home. And I tell you, man, it's been, it was destructive. And it was one-sided. My mom was really the victim, completely the victim. She would not have had it that way. You know, but it was destructive. And so even now, my mom's married to this godly man who I love, and my kids call him Pap, and he's their granddad. And, and I'm thankful because my dad was an immoral guy. He's, my dad's dead and gone now. But I love the fact that my kids have this godly dude that they can look to as a granddad. But I don't understand God's will and, and my dad leaving. I don't think I ever will. It's okay. It, don't, don't think that, that you're going through a hard season and you're saying, well, I know it's God's will and one day I'll understand it. You may not, guys. We, God's ways are not our ways. His ways are higher than our ways. We do not have his mind. The scripture says in Romans 11, who has known the mind of the Lord? Who's known the mind of the Lord? It's a rhetorical question. Doesn't need an answer. The answer is obvious. Nobody's known the mind of the Lord. We know what God reveals Anything he doesn't reveal is referred to as a mystery. It's a big Greek word, mysterion, that means unknowable and shrouded in mystery. So we don't always know God's will. So when we're praying for God's will to be done, we, we, we do that knowing that we may never understand exactly what his will in a situation was. Why did that child die? Why did your, your mom or your dad leave? Why did your brother or your sister get killed? Why, why did this bad thing happen or that bad thing? I don't know, but I know this. God is building a kingdom, and he has a plan and a purpose that even in this fallen, sinful world, he's going to work to his good and our good. What I can know of God's will is what he reveals to me in Scripture. And, and so it's important that in, the, in, in a believer's life, we're constantly in, in study of the Scripture. Listen to what Romans 12 says. We can know this from God's word. Well, I just don't know what God's will for my life is. I hear people say that a lot. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So give yourselves to God fully in worship and in holiness and in sacrifice. Don't be conformed to this world. Don't let this world determine how you're going to live your life and the way you're going to live it and why you're going to live it that way. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Every day your mind should be transformed. How, th how's, how would our mind be transformed and changed daily? They're like, well, man, my mind, I mean, it seems like it got changed yesterday. I don't know if I can keep this up, my mind getting changed every day. Well, it's not what it's talking about. It's talking about a transformation in the way you think and view things and see the world. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. There it is, the will of God. What is good and acceptable and perfect. You'll know the will of God. Be conformed to Jesus daily. Have your mind transformed by the scriptures. Be renewed through personal worship each day. And God will reveal his will to you. That's the thing that we can know for sure. So as we pray, 
we pray, and these, these three things are critical. Understanding who God is, who we're talking to, where he is enthroned on heaven, in heaven, on high, but that he's also dwelling in our hearts with us by his spirit. So we pray to that God, but then we pray in complete surrender, asking for his will to be done as his kingdom is established and built through the power and the work of the gospel. That's what's going to affect good leadership. Good leaders are always going to be leaders who care mostly about the will of God and the kingdom of God. That's got to be our most important value. You want to be a good leader? You want to be someone who impacts others? Care about the will of God. Care about the gospel. Care about the upbuilding of the kingdom. That's what's going to influence and impact the world. That's what's going to impact the world. Don't be obsessed and consumed with your little part of the world. Worry about how are we going to impact this world with the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand in the sense that repentance is preached, the gospel is real, Jesus is risen, he is enthroned, and that's the God we worship. So that's how we pray, okay? Let me pray, and we're going to close with a song of worship, okay? Lord, we worship you in spirit and in truth this morning because you're worthy. We praise you this morning because you're worthy. We love you this morning because you're worthy. You are Lord, our God. Because of the cross of Jesus, we can even approach you. If not for the cross of Christ, we would not even be able to come into your presence. But we are here now in your presence. And we thank you for that. We love you for that. We worship you for that. I pray, Lord, that we would be able to receive your will for our lives daily and that the impact and influence we would have on the world today would be uh, deep and real because of our walk with you, our relationship with you. We love you, Lord. We worship you, Lord. And we thank you, Lord, for your goodness. And I pray that this day would be a day of blessing and growth as we worship you. You're our Father in heaven. And we desire for your kingdom to come and we desire for your will to be done in our lives as it is in heaven. So we worship you now in song, in Jesus' name. Amen.